Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all things healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Thank you for tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you for supporting this podcast and being a long-time listener. I very much appreciate it. If you are an avid listener to this podcast, you can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan and ask for the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt. I will gladly mail you one. It is the best t-shirt that you will wear anywhere you go, whether it's formal or working out or on Peloton. And no, this podcast is not sponsored by anyone and not by Peloton. Also, you can actually uh, order my first book ever. Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. I would appreciate if you would look it up on Amazon or anywhere you consume your books. You can actually buy the book or Kindle or audiobook. And if you like what you read, this is a true story of litigations against Monsanto and their product Roundup that has been linked to non-Hodgkin lymphoma, where I testified as an expert witness for the patients that sued Monsanto. If you can write a review on Amazon, I would be very grateful. Today's podcast is with Dr. Martin Tallman. Martin Tallman, previous ASH president, a world-renowned leukemia expert, who is currently at Northwestern University, but prior to that was at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and before that was also at Northwestern University. I had the pleasure to be Marty's fellow when I was a fellow at Northwestern, and I learned from him a lot. I learned from him about acute myeloid leukemia, about morphology uh, and, and, and looking at the slides and the cells under the microscope. By the end of my first uh, year, I felt very comfortable taking care of leukemia patients. I met him for the first time in 1999, so it is such a pleasure and an honor and a privilege that one of my mentors agreed to come on my humble amateur healthcare unfiltered podcast. Uh, Marty has done so much for acute myeloid leukemia, was also involved in the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, a little bit of CLL, and certainly pioneered some of the treatments of hairy cell leukemia. But his passion, as you will learn, is in acute myeloid leukemia. He has been instrumental in developing many studies uh, in the cooperative groups, especially with ECOG and intergroup studies. And he has mentored uh, numerous uh, junior faculty, fellows, residents, and I certainly owe him a lot. One of the first papers I have ever, 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 ever written, probably my first paper as a fellow, was the role of bone marrow transplantation in acute promyelocytic leukemia. And it was an opportunity that was given to, be, to me by Dr. Martin Tolman. Marty, if you're listening to this show, I am very grateful to everything you have done, to all of your mentorship. I really want to thank you for, uh, uh, for, for, for everything you have provided me uh, from career advice, also joking to me about me and uh, to, to in my face and to others. It's really an honor to have Marty Tolman in this podcast. I appreciate his time that he provided, and I promise you, you're going to enjoy our entire unfiltered discussion, especially as Marty continues to correct me 23 years after we had met for the first time, 24 years. He continues to correct me. And for that, 
I am very grateful. Without further ado, Dr. Martin Tallman, exclusively on Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast. Martin Tallman, welcome to the Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you, Shadi. It's my pleasure and a true privilege, and thank you for having me. So there may be a couple of people out there in the world that don't know you. And for those two people who might be listening and don't know who Marty Tolman is, maybe a little bit about you. I am a Chicagoan. I went to medical school here in Chicago, undergraduate at the University of Michigan. Or actually, for a year, I'm not sure you know this, Shadi, I was in the School of Music. I did not know that. As a cellist. And I had a wonderful year, but I learned I wasn't that good. I wasn't that good. I I see that you succeeded very well in music. (laughs) I didn't think I was that good. I could have gotten a job, I think, in a a symphony, but um, I didn't want that for my vocation. I wanted that for my avocation. So I switched to the to a pre-med program, graduated, went to medical school, and I did my uh, internship residency and chief residency at Evanston Hospital, part of Northwestern. And then I went to Seattle for my fellowship. And then I came back to Northwestern, where I was in the faculty for 21 years, very wonderful 21 years. And then I had a wonderful job opportunity at Sloan Kettering to become the chief of the leukemia service. And they made me just a wonderful offer and I thought it was a fantastic opportunity. And I've been there for 12 years when one of my sons had the audacity with his wife to have a baby. Terrible. How dare him. So you're a grandfather. I'm a grandfather, a first-term grandfather. It's wonderful. And that was enough for my wife to convince her to move back. So I take it your son and his wife, they live in Chicago? They live in Chicago. So you're back at Northwestern to your roots. I'm back at Northwestern. Very happy to be there. Wonderful institution. And in addition to seeing leukemia patients, uh, Marty, what do you what do you have other administrative responsibilities at Northwestern? Well, I'm professor of medicine. I'm seeing patients, doing some teaching. I'll be doing a lot of teaching, and they asked me to be very involved in mentorship and career development, which I suppose after twelve years as a chief at Sloan Kettering, I ought to know something about career development. You know, that's a good segue. What does that mean? Like, in other words, um, how do you, where do you start? How do you, in that role, how are you going to execute on that mission? What's your vision? How are you going to actually work on career development and mentorship? Um, I presume this is for junior faculty who are joining the institution. What what are your plans? Like, what are you going to do to make sure that this actually happens? I think it's a wonderful opportunity for junior faculty and for me, and I hope to meet with each junior faculty that wants to meet and see if I can help determine, identify a mentor if they haven't, if they don't have a mentor. And uh, I may serve as a mentor for some of the leukemia faculty 
but otherwise uh, help foster a career development plan and mostly um, make sure that they align themselves with an appropriate mentor themselves. So what what are the criteria of a good mentor? Like who is a good mentor? I think a good mentor is should be an expert in the field of the mentee. It should be a person that is enthusiastic about fostering the career development of a junior faculty. It should be someone that is willing to give up some opportunities that they can pass to that mentee. Someone that is anxious to impart knowledge and experience and guide the career of the junior faculty. It should be a, a good listener. It should be someone that's anxious to listen. Someone with whom, for whom the mentee has respect as a as a mentor. I think those are the main qualities. You know, I love the fact that you mentioned give up certain yeah. opportunities. I mean, I, I think this is really critical. And um, and it's probably why mentors, in my opinion, need to be senior level, because um, at some point you want to be over the fact that you need to be a first author or something like that on these papers, and you have to pass these along. And you're not going to pass these along if you're still an associate professor, I would think. But maybe I'm wrong. You're right. I think that's true in any leadership position. The focus, to a certain extent, is whether you're a chief, whether you're a department chair, whether you're a mentor, the focus uh, changes a little bit. Uh, until that time, you're in that kind of a position. We all promote ourselves and our own careers, give talks, write papers, write reviews. But when you become a mentor or a chief or a leader in any leadership position, you have to be willing, secure enough, as you suggest, to um, relinquish some opportunities and relinquish those opportunities to the mentee. Mike, you've had a long career in terms of folks that you've trained and mentored. And like, what's what advice do you give to? mentees to folks who really want to try to build a career and um i think it's it's getting harder and harder i mean getting funding is harder research is harder there's a lot it's just not the same as 20 years ago what, what how would you what advice would you give them i think um one important uh fact is to be as focused as you can you know, it, it is a little bit of, it's said with tongue-in-cheek, you get rewarded in academic medicine for knowing more and more about less and less. <laughs> so you are you are basically, you, you're an expert only in AML M7 that still exists? <laughs> well, you have to know about all of AML, but it's there's, some, there's a little bit of truth to that. If you become an expert, in even a narrow, very narrow field, people recognize you as an expert. You write in the field. You, that's how you become an expert. And then anytime anyone wants to talk, someone wants to talk on AMLM7, they call you. So, so I what, think there's some, some truth to that. 
what got you into leukemia? I mean, you went to medical school. What got you into oncology? And then after oncology, what got you into leukemia? My path was very clear. When I was an intern, there were two uh, hematologists, uh, both gone now, who I thought were the smartest, most wonderful, compassionate uh, physicians. They were both leukemia hematologists. And um, hematology was one of my early rotations. And um, I liked looking at the cells under the microscope. And one of them in, early in that rotation was going to the ASH meeting. This was in 1980. Who was that? Can you share his name? His name was Dr. Steve Curtides. He said, I'm going to the ASH meeting. And I was an intern. He said, would you like to join me? I think it was in Washington, D.C., if I'm correct, at the Shoreham Hotel. At that time, the entire meeting was in one hotel, if you can imagine that. <laughs> Hard to believe. And um, I went with him, and I've only missed one ASH meeting since 1980. That was when one of my kids was born in 1986. Her birthday is December 8th, and I'm usually not home for her birthday. Who's the other hematologist that influenced you? Dr. Harry Miller. So these two folks you met during residency and it made you decide you want to do hemonc. Yes. And I, I think about it to this day. If they and I wonder if they were cardiologists, would I want to be would I be in cardiology? I think it's interesting how an individual can influence. I think that's actually not uncommon that an individual faculty member at an institution uh, is inspiring to, to a student or to a house officer and that guides them in that direction. I mean, I was influenced by you, by uh, Leo Gordon, by Jane Winter, and by Steve Rosen. And all I could think about was lymphoma and leukemia. And uh, you're right. I mean, sometimes you wonder if you were influenced by... Well, Bill Gradishar is not that influential. I mean, of course... Hopefully he's listening to this. Um, then what got you to the Hutch? I mean, uh, obviously the Hutch is the mecca for transplant and leukemia. Was it difficult to get to? Like, what, how did you decide to go to Seattle? I knew not only since I was an intern that I wanted to be a hematologist, I always wanted to study and be involved in the care of patients with AML. I branched out a little bit. Of course, I have interest in ALL and homocytic leukemia and, and, uh, and side interest in hairy cell. But I always wanted, since my internship, um, to be involved in AML and the study of AML. I've never wavered from that. And I uh, finished my chief residency, and I feeling was that Seattle was at the time, and I think still is, a leading institution in um, both transplant and leukemia. And I had a wonderful experience there. Fantastic. You were trained by Fred Applebaum? I was, and I regard him as one of my main mentors. I'm curious, Marty, about what you mentioned, looking at cells under the microscope. There is not a formal training for us, as at least at the time, for fellows with pathology, frankly. I would just go <clears throat> with you or with somebody else and just go to the hematopathology lab and take a look at the cells with, with the pathologists. 
is that changing? Like, do you do, do you not feel that he mind fellows should get really more formal mentorship or training in hematopathology or in pathology in general? I think it's a good point, and I think that a number of um, fellows and house officers decide to rotate, elect to rotate in hematopathology. That's more common than it ever has been in the past. But I think it's important. I I essentially never treat a patient without looking at the slides with the pathologist under the microscope myself. And there were sometimes during the height of COVID, then it was very difficult. But in general, I always look at the slides under the microscope with the hematopathologist together. Have you ever disagreed with the hematopathologist? Like, I mean, you look at you look at them because you want to learn and just take a look at them, or do you feel that you may actually alert the hematopathologist certain nuances that they may not be aware of? Uh, both, but particularly the latter. They're very anxious. Good hematopathologists are very anxious to hear about the disease, the chronicity of the disease, associated medical problems that may have influenced the disease. So I think they're very anxious. Is there splenomegaly, for example? I think all of these things a good hematopathologist wants to know when they to arrive at a firm diagnosis. I'm just uh, taking your picture right now for Twitter at some point, just in case for these folks who are listening. Um, so then, then how did you become an ASH president? I mean, it's not like, you know, you, I mean, is this something you wanted to, or does it come organically? I presume it's not something when you went into training, you said, I want to be the president of the American Society of Hematology. No, not at all. How did this happen? It's, you first run for vice president. And if you're elected vice president, then you become president elected and president each uh, year's duration. And someone or several individuals nominate you, and it's vetted through the nominating committee. And they ask you if you're interested to run. And I told them I'd be, it'd be a pleasure and a privilege. It's a great privilege to be the president of ASH. So, so the nominating committee says, comes to you and says, we think that you would be a good president of ASH. And then you, you could say yay or nay, and you said yes. Why did you say yes? Like, what, what's, what, what is it? Um, a, I'd like to know a day in your life as a Ash president. I mean, do you stop seeing patients? Do you have to cut on practice? What, what does it mean to be president of Ash? And I, I voted for you, by the way, so you owe me. I'm from Chicago, so vote. My vote is not free. You haven't paid yet. I appreciate that. No, it's a, it's a great privilege to uh, be asked if you're interested in, in running for president and being elected by your peers to lead the society for a year. Let me say, when you're the president of ASH, you have a lot of responsibilities, but almost none of the responsibilities um, are done by yourself. They're all facilitated by an amazing ASH staff, amazing group of people. Um, led by a brilliant, really brilliant administrator, Mar Marty Liggett, who's been uh, the executive director of the ASH for many years. And is a, she, she uh, coordinates a fantastic staff of people. 
I actually ran first year for vice president and I lost. You may remember I lost to my good friend, Stephanie Lee. I was very happy for her though. She did a wonderful job. She had a challenging job because that was at the height of COVID when it was completely virtual. Then I ran again and won. And I was delighted we had a half virtual and half in person, as you may remember. Who was your opponent? I think it was David Bodine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what, what's, uh, what's uh, take me through how this, like what were you doing? In other words, was it one day a week where it's only for Ash and the other four days for your practice did you have to change your schedule to accommodate this? Or I guess I'm trying to tell educate listeners how much of that position is a figure for the world of hematology as a leader uh, versus how much it's time consuming in terms of day-to-day -day and signing papers and doing stuff and talking to the press and talking to other folks, you know? Yes, it's really both. First of all, the broad responsibilities are to represent the interests of the membership and advocate for the interests of the membership. It should function like a government, but it functions much better than our government because things get done and they get done well. I see the government is doing so well nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ash, uh, I wish we had the leadership of Ash running our government. Yeah, me too. I The only major change, it is it is quite a busy year. In terms of my own schedule, I did uh, stop attending on the inpatient service. I still saw patients in my clinic. Uh, and Sloan Kettering, but I did stop attending because um, I, I would say that there's responsibilities that need to be attended to almost every day, every day, every other day. There are signing documents, advocacy responsibilities, meetings with um, congressmen, congress uh, members of Congress, other representatives. Um, there's lots of, you attend uh, virtually all of the many standing committee meetings. Um, and they are, uh, there's a lot of them. And so that's, that's quite time consuming. Part of me thinks it should be more than one year. It's so hard to do anything in one year. I know it's busy, but I feel like, you know, sometimes if you have like a, an agenda and you want to, don't you think one year is too short? It is a busy year. It is. It is. Um, it is busy. There's certain responsibilities. Again, I would say every day, every other day, throughout the year, and um, it certainly gives other individuals an opportunity to lead the society. So, um, I think one year is um, good length. So one of the things that uh, we see, I got I to share this with you as a former ASH president, there was a, there was always this uh, many cries in terms of the cost of submitting abstracts to ASH. Um, it's a non-refundable fee. I think it started at $60. It's now probably $85. So if you submit 20 abstracts, you're talking almost $2,000 that is non-refundable uh, for the abstracts you submit. And there's always the the, the suggestion that this is um, unnecessary. It's too much. At some point, the abstracts were free. You don't need to pay for submission. 
especially for trainees and junior folks that, you know, um, that's a lot of money. As an ASH president, did this come up in your term? Is this the kind of thing that people bring up to you and say, hey, we've hearing, we're hearing a lot about this. Should we make a change? Are you involved in this or is this not something that you would involved in? And, and do you think it should change? It certainly is the kind of thing that people can write the president of ASH and then I would refer them to the appropriate uh, committee, the appropriate individual, the appropriate ASH staff. And then if it's a, it's a serious issue, and many times it is, it's brought before the executive committee and uh, the executive committee renders a decision. So it certainly is uh, an issue which I've heard about. I have to admit that I'm glad that it didn't come up in my tenure as the ASH president. And it, it's something that I know people have talked about and debated, and uh, it is worth uh, the executive committee addressing, I think. What are your thoughts on it? Any thoughts on it? I mean, if you were in charge, um, would you would you have a, an opinion into what, what your thoughts would be? I don't know how important that uh, fee is to blood, the blood journal or the other journals. Certainly a source of revenue, and I'm not exactly sure how important a source of revenue is. So I think we need more information before we make a decision. But it's it's worth discussing. Yeah. Yeah. And and the cost of attending these meetings <laughs> is becoming a little bit too uh, too steep. When you were assigned to be when you were elected to be an ash president, um was did they ask you for a theme? Like, you know, your presidency did have like a theme or a you know, like a, uh, a vision that you need to accomplish? Did you have that? I didn't ask for a theme, but uh, when you run for the vice president, which lead to the presidency, you do, uh, you may remember that you do fill out a little bit of a biography and they ask a number of questions. And they do ask you to address uh, your vision. And uh, I indicated that uh, I thought that there are three major sort of pillars of ASH, I think of. Number one, research. Number two, advocacy. And number three, education. And I was, of course, enthusiastic about uh, representing the interests of the members in those all those three areas. But I was always impressed that the, I think the major feature that is the, the major issue that is uh, facing ASH members and, and all of medicine is the rapid pace of progress. I mean, there is so much coming so quickly uh, and it's hard to take it all in and it's hard to implement all of the new knowledge. And so I, I thought that that was an important area of focus that we should really focus on education. And uh, I think we did. Yeah, I mean, there's so many drugs that get approved uh, all the time. And, you know, there's always, um, you know, on Twitter, on social media, as you know, there's always the debate about certain trials and drugs and approvals and things like that. You've become fairly more active on social media compared to a couple of years back. What's What are your thoughts on what you see? Uh, sometimes you chime in. Sometimes I think you just watch from a distance and just uh, listen to the dialogue. What's, what are your thoughts, uh, observations on social media and the discussions you see about trials and data? Well, I think social media is fantastic. I think Twitter is, is terrific. I chime in when I think I have something uh, 
either intelligent or to contribute. I don't, I'm not sure I contribute everything that's intelligent, but when I have something I think I can make a contribution, I chime in. Um, but I think it is a fantastic source of medical knowledge about, uh, as you know well, you hear about new drugs very quickly on Twitter. Um, people post information about questions and debates about, about cases and uh, new publications we hear about quickly and people's opinions, their evaluation of new publications. So I think it's, um, I think it's a wonderful source of education. By the way, I, you, you should note, as I'm sure you do, I chime in not only on medicine, I chime in on, on classical music and particularly when it has to do with the cello. I have not seen that. I see Leon, the cancer center director there, always posting about certain things pertaining to classic music and symphony and things like that. Yes, I think he's very knowledgeable about classical music and he, he enjoys it very much. I actually wonder sometimes, I haven't asked him that question, like, you know, how much does he really know? Or does he like look things up and then he posts them? I need to ask him that. My sense is that he really knows the... Uh, oh, he knows amazingly about that. Yeah. It's crazy. Let's talk a little bit about leukemia. You've been taking care of leukemia patients for about three decades. I'm not saying you're old, Marty. Don't worry. <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah, don't worry. But... You know, when I was taking care of patients of you, uh, for you, with you, and for the record, for listeners, when I was Marty's fellow, he did not perform any bone marrow biopsy and aspirate on his own whatsoever. I did all of the bone marrow biopsies and aspirates. You remember and that? You, you became very adept at it. Yes, because every time you were supposed to do a bone marrow, you said you had like a tennis elbow, and somehow you're like, I, I can't do it. I have a tennis elbow. I don't know about every time, but I did have tennis elbow. In fact, I got an injection of hydrocortisone. Yes. Before, before that, I actually had an MRI. It was legitimate. I had bad tennis elbow. I think they always happen the day of the bone marrow biopsy, though. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but, but, I mean, leukemia is a completely different disease. I mean, at the time, it was 7 and 3. And HIDAC and allotransplant, which was not easy to do. And look where we are now. I mean, what? take me through the history, what you have noticed in terms of what you were doing for leukemia patients back then and what you're doing now. You're exactly right. The initial induction therapy that we use today when we give classical conventional induction was described really in 1973. And for the next 44 years, there were no sustained drug approvals. I say no sustained drug approvals because you know that gemtuzumab was approved, but it was withdrawn. So I, I shouldn't say there was no approvals. There was one approval. But essentially, there were no sustained approved drugs for 44 years. And just as you said, the approach was very similar, so-called one-size-fits-all. There was seven and three, followed by high DAC or intensive consolidation. And for as many patients as were eligible, allogeneic transplant, which was a difficult procedure then. It's still difficult, but I think it's much easier than it ever has been. So there was no sustained drug approvals between 1973 and 2017. 
all of a sudden in 2017, we saw the approval of mitostorin, FLIP3 inhibitor. And since then, there have been nine others. So between 2017 and 2023, there have been 10 new drugs that have been approved for patients with AML. Some frontline for frontline use and some for relapse and refractory patients. And it's become more interesting, more exciting, the care of patients with AML, but I think in many ways more difficult. They have many more choices, but that leads to more difficult decisions. And I think it can cause a lot of um, consternation among leukemia physicians, certainly constitutes a lot of debate. We now, of course, there's a huge move in many ways away from chemotherapy, away from cytotoxic chemotherapy toward more targeted therapy. And I think the most important of the 10 drugs is venetoclax, which as you know, is combined with hypomethylating agents. And I think it's it's created a whole new field of opportunities in the field of AML. Many new drugs are being combined with hypomethylating agents plus venetoclax. And I think that that regimen will form as the basis for maybe even replacing, certainly it's replaced seven and three in, in many older adults who are not fit for chemotherapy. No question about that, it's a new standard of care. But I think it's a new, it, it may emerge as a new standard of care in older adults who are candidates for chemotherapy, particularly those with unfavorable cytogenetics and molecular genetics. And in fact, I'd go so far as to say it may replace seven and three in younger patients who are suitable candidates for intensive chemotherapy, but who have very unfavorable cytogenetics, those with TP53 mutation, complex cytogenetics. So, yes. Do you need a prospective randomized controlled trials to replace the 7 and 3 with the Vinitoclax HMA? I think so, yes. I think that will be needed. Uh, whether it can be done or will be done, as I said, is a difficult question, but I think it should be done, yes. One of the critiques that I saw recently on social media about the CPX compound was that the uh, the trial, the NEJM paper, I believe, patients who did not respond uh, or the consolidation, I guess, therapy was five and two, uh, not always high DAC uh, in those patients. And the thought process was we really don't do five and two. After seven and three, you do high DAC for these patients. You don't really do five and two after seven and three. So I'm I'm curious if if you've seen that uh, criticism. If this is, uh, I recall when I was a fellow, uh, you taught me I could do five and two for some patients, um, uh, older adults, especially the older ones. Um, that as a consolidation, so they go into CR, and I've had several patients with you who've done five and two, but I'm not sure the data or the evidence on this. But have you seen that criticism? Any thought on this? Because that's why CPX apparently was superior, and a lot of folks contested that this is not really the appropriate design. Yeah, let me, if I may, with great respect, I want to correct you on one fact, and that is that you talk about the initial randomized phase three study, correct? Yes. It was published, I think, in the JCO, not the New England Journal. 
maybe it was JCO, so I apologize if it was. Uh, yes, well, you always corrected me, so uh, I stand corrected. JCO, any jam, doesn't matter. It's People Magazine. With great, with great respect, I say that. No, it's true. In older adults, in the cooperative groups, uh, I think uh, all three of the cooperatives often had trials. It was not clear that high-dose cytarabine was effective in older adults, and you couldn't deliver true high-dose cytarabine. You have to deliver less than high-dose, maybe intermediate dose. But I think, um, I'm not sure it's clear that older adults do better with high-dose or intermediate-dose cytarabine than a repeat of induction. So yes, there was a time when it was certainly acceptable to repeat induction in older adults as consolidation. So I have seen that criticism, and I'm not sure how valid it is. You know, so so you repeat the induction, just an abbreviated induction, five and two. Um, you know, I mean, part of the reason, Marty, this is, I think, a, a timely question is not just necessarily the criticism itself, but we we don't have, we don't, we don't have a study to answer every single question that we have in medicine and i don't know how we reconcile that so for example there are no studies that i'm aware of prospective studies that compare five and two to hydac or to intermediate uh, dose terabine but still people did it so what what are your thoughts i mean how do we really proceed forward um, when we don't have enough resources and trials to answer every question well, permit me with great respect, again. Again, I made a mistake. With, I say this with, with great respect as a friend and colleague. There was, <laughs> there was, I'm trying to be delicate. Hey, it's unfiltered. Go for it, buddy. Right, that's right. It's unfiltered. So Alan Burnett in the JCO and, and the um, former MRC, now the NCRI in the UK, did a randomized trial of three grams per meter squared consolidation twice a day, day one, three, five, versus one and a half grams in immediate dose, day one, three, five, twice a day. And they found essentially there was no difference. There was there was essentially no difference in outcome. Now, and, and there's been a move toward giving less than three grams per meter squared, except maybe in core binding fracture leukemias where there's some suggestive evidence. Even that evidence is not very strong. Some suggestive evidence that three grams per meter squared is, is beneficial compared to lower doses. How about the five and two? If I'm correct, in ECOG, I, I am correct. In ECOG, we never use five and two. When we repeated the induction, we gave another cycle of seven to three to older adults. I think that was from the the alliance, formerly the Cancer and Leukemia Group B. If I'm correct, their protocols often repeated five and two, I think to diminish the potential toxicity. But in ECOG, we always gave a repeat of induction, seven and three. Marty, leukemia is becoming such a like you've got like 20 leukemias um, because everything now is on the molecular level, you, you know, from an NPM to FLIT to IDH2 to IDA, all of these molecular subclassification of leukemia. 
how relevant is morphology today? And, you know, what you taught me back in the day under the microscope and, you know, is it really, does it matter anymore? No, it's interesting. When I hear about a new leukemia patient, I used to, and I'm still somewhat interested in the white count, want to know the age, certainly want to know comorbidities. But the first thing that comes to my mind when someone says I have a new patient with AML is what are the, my immediate reaction is what are the genetics? What are the cytogenetics and what are the molecular genetics? And in a way, more so than the white count, more so than the age of the patient, because it's really the genetics that drive the course of the disease. Not only, of course, important in diagnosis and prognosis, but it really drives the disease. You get a you get a, a feel for what the course of the disease is going to be based on the cytogenetics and molecular genetics. I think morphology is still important. I think you still want to look at the bone marrow to know if there are um, associated um, eosinophilia, basophilia, dysplasia, other changes in the bone structure. So I think morphology is still important. And I acknowledge the first thing that I want that comes to my mind are what are the genetics, cytogenetics and molecular genetics. So, but, I mean, as you, you're a clinical trialist, and some of your studies were published in the most prestigious journals in the world, NEJM and, and others, as, as leukemia, already a rare disease, becomes ultra rare with all of these differences, how are we, are we still able to do prospective large phase three randomized control trial to understand new drugs, replacing older drugs, and power it to be able to um, to to detect these differences, or do you think clinical trial design is changing in some of these ultra rare diseases? I think that there's never been a more exciting time, as you and I have suggested. There's never been more drugs potential for drug combinations. I think it's never been more important to collaborate. And I think there's never been such good collaboration as there is today, not only within the United States, but even across uh, across the Atlantic to and Pacific to other parts of the world. Having said that, I do agree that I think there's a great interest in developing new designs, new statistical ways of anal anal uh, analyzing statistically the results to see if you can identify new findings with less patients. So but I but I think so I think that's important, but I think there's never been more collaboration. So I think um but it certainly would be helpful to be able to make these make important observations with less patients. Yeah. I mean I'm I'm just trying to think, for example, let's say you want to design a study today for IDH or for FLIP3 positive AML patients. I mean, you know, I mean, how many AML patients you need to screen to find the FLIT3 and then randomize and what would be the control arm and the, like, I just think in the cooperative groups when you guys sit and thinking of the design, designing the next trial for AML, I presume all of these conversations are happening and I don't know how you reach a consensus. Well, they are happening. There's no question, and the new big one will be called the MyeloMatch protocol, which has taken many years to design, but hopefully it's coming to 
uh, fruition very soon. When did you and start? It, uh, when did you start designing this? A number of years ago. I, I was not directly involved in its design, but it's a number of years ago. I think four or five years ago. Uh, so it, it, this has taken a long time, but it involves all three cooperative groups, which always is um, it requires consensus to the design for the design. Are you able to share the question being asked? No, there. I, 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 first of all, there are numerous questions. There are numerous sort of protocols and sub protocols. So it's a complicated uh, design, and I'll wait till it's um, publicized. And this is in frontline. Frontline. And then in relapse disease, when you look at relapse disease AML as a clinical trialist, are you also segmenting AML in the relapse setting based on the molecular subtype, or are you trying to lump things together? Well, we're trying to uh, identify them in design trials based on molecular genetics, because yeah. many of the new drugs, menin inhibitors, certain antibody immunoconjugates are desired, targeted, so we're trying to enhance enrich uh, protocols, patient populations for those abnormalities. How was your ASH meeting? Anything, anything, uh, I mean, excited you at the ASH meeting? Uh, the MEN inhibitor was pretty, uh, I think it was like the, seems like the hot stuff going on. Yep, I think that was exciting. There's a lot of interest still in Megrolimab, anti-CD47 antibody. Um, and there were a number of combinations, uh, 5-azacitidine or decitabine plus venetoclax plus a third agent. There were many of those trials. So I think those were among the most exciting. This uh, has been really exciting. Know. We talked about mentorship, leadership, your career, AML, ASH. We're not done, are we? No, we're never going to be done unless you tell me we're done. I mean... You're the boss. See, see the nice thing about healthcare unfiltered, Marty, is I don't need to edit anything. It just basically everybody is gonna hear I made two mistakes. Thank you very much. <laughs> everybody is gonna hear that you just asked me if you're done, and I said whenever you want. But everybody's gonna know that I did all of your bone marrows, and you refuse to do any bone marrow. Didn't they ask me how my tennis game is. Uh, I'm presuming you're still having tennis elbow. No more tennis elbow, but I'm into pickleball now. You are? Yeah. How's that going? Great. Great game. Do you play? No, I, I don't have any time. I work too much. You have too many podcasts. Not really. But, uh, you know, as listeners will know, they are going to, you know, pre-order and purchase my book, as you will as well. Happy to that's that's good marketing right there. And you're going to write a review on Amazon. Be happy to. I like it. Well, Marty Tolman, thank you so much for visiting with me on Healthcare Unfiltered. It's such an honor and a privilege to have you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thank you for tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate you being loyal listeners, and I appreciate you dialing in for this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast. For that, I will be forever grateful. 
if you can support my first book, Toxic Exposure, the true story of the Monsanto trials and the search for justice, I would be forever grateful as well. Let me know what you think about this podcast and others by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. You can visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com, and you can watch all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Also, don't forget to ask me for the T-shirt, the Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast T-shirt. I will mail it to you as long as you tell me that you are a loyal listener to this podcast. Marty Tallman, thank you so much for being on this podcast. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote from a poet, a Lebanese poet, Khalil Gibran. Yesterday is but today's memory, and tomorrow is today's dream. Until next time, take care.